0: Welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working. Phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn? To hear what other leaders are doing? To hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul locklin and with me today is James Dunlop. James is the Head of Decisioning and Digital for the Wealth Division in NatWest Group. Before joining NatWest, James has worked for a number of other financial services brands, including AXO and Lloyd's, in various data and analytics roles. In fact, like two of my previous guests, that's the episodes with Andy Sutton and Harry Wilkes, James previously had the um, pleasure, I'll let him decide that, of working as part of my leadership team at Lloyd's. So this podcast has become a real gathering of old friends, which I enjoy. Anyway, there's much more to hear from uh, about James, including his role at Screwfix when they were still finding their feet as a business, uh, and the challenges of a focus on high net worth customers. So welcome, James. Thank you very much, Paul.
1: Um, can I just say I've got a lot from listening to your podcast today, so really pleased to be part of it. Um, and I've put quite a lot of thought into my eight sole choices and luxury item, and I'm raring to go.
0: I, high praise. High, if I was anywhere near the desert island disc standard, I would I would retire. Thank you very much. G- good to have you as a guest, James. This is this is going to be fun. I can tell. Um, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to, to speak about. Hopefully, no more jokes, but we'll see. Um, so I'm I'm keen to get started with with giving our listeners an insight into the hands-on experience you've got to share. So could you tell us a bit about your background, your career story, if you like, and how you ended up working at NatWest from starting as a a male model for Screwfix, I
1: believe. I'm really pleased you mentioned that, Paul. Thank you. Um, Yes, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, See, I'd go right back in time to being back at school where I was a a kind of jack of all trades and master Mm. of none. Mm. and ended up doing the strangest bunch of A-levels that you're ever going to see, including theatre studies and human biology, plus a bit of maths. I guess I got to the, the end of that and thought, well, what's going to come next? I had a very slight preference and aptitude for maths, um, mm. and it also felt like it provided the safest route to uh, to securing work. Mm. So I got, I, I took a maths degree, got to the end of my degree and went on to do an operational research master's, which was all around the practical application of, of maths. I got to spend a bit of time working with uh, Interbrew on a project around beer and its relationship to weather. Um, so sun comes out, more lagers drunk naturally, um, mm. and got involved in some forecasting there, which really kind of ignited my passion for data and insight. Mm. Mm. Um, but again, as a as a common theme really for me, I didn't have a, a, a plan in mind for what to do after that point. So I spotted a job in the southwest and assumed it was the, the bright lights of Bristol, but it turned out it was actually in Neovil for a company, as you've alluded to, called Screwfix, who very kindly offered me the chance to appear in their catalogue. I think I was um, sporting a hard hat, um, high-vis jacket, and looking uh, quite the part. Um, <laughs> at the same time, uh, they were a small start-up, as you referred to, um, mm. so it was a great grounding, really, because we got to get involved in a bit of everything from data mm. perspective. I was part of the database marketing team, but there was only two of us in that team. So I got to try lots of different stuff mm. and then moved to Lloyds, um, where I was for 10 years, um, covering many and varied roles across general insurance, wealth mm. and retail, ranging from customer analytics, customer research, data quality, business partnering. There were reporting elements to it as well. Mm. But the majority of my time there was spent on database marketing or decisioning, mm. as it's mm. become known. Um, and that's really the part I, I really did love. Um if that's not too strong a word, it possibly is. Um <laughs> and and as you say, I I also got the chance to work for a, an inspirational leader called Paul Auckland. Oh. Um <laughs> is, that, uh, is that pandering enough for you?
0: That that that's great. We'll we'll, we'll go over that later, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> but seriously though, again, a fantastic grounding. Um I think in that time, um, you know, you really emphasize the the need to take a consultative approach to insight. So really understanding Mm -hmm. your stakeholders objectives, but then being flexible about the solution that you provided to really meet Mm -hmm. their needs. Mm -hmm. And also just how to deliver really effective database marketing with propensity trigger-based marketing, which Mm -hmm. I've really taken on from Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. I then did a couple of years at AXA before spending, um, I've spent the last four years at NatWest Group. So I lead the decisioning and digital analytics team for the wealth division which encompasses um, uh, the Coots brand, Adam & Co, north of the border, and now also the Premier base as well, um, mm. as well as high-end retail clients. So really high-net-worth individuals. Mm. Um, and it, it's fascinating because you're running your campaign checks, and you're seeing Premier League footballers in there, mm. TV personalities, you know, leading mm. figures in business. So it's a, a fascinating base to work with. Mm. Mm. Um, I've also taken on... Um, a responsibility that I'm quite proud of, which is I'm the climate change and sustainability lead for data analytics, uh, which is something I'm really passionate about. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's representing about a thousand people across the department on that agenda, um, Mm -hmm. trying to encourage them to make small changes in their lifestyle, which Mm -hmm. could add add up to making quite a big difference, but also exploring opportunities to influence change through data analytics and insight as well Mm -hmm. on the climate agenda. So that pretty much brings us up to today. And my first song choice, Paul, um, which is going to be You Can Do It, Put Your Back Into It by Ice Cube, um, a song that reminds me of my time in Yeovil at uh, Le Jardin nightclub uh, with the Yeovil Town FC players. So cue music.
0: Marvellous. If, if, if only I had the, the song choice, listeners. There, there we go. This is clearly nudging me toward a different <laughs> style of podcast. I. I'm intrigued by the last part. You mentioned actually, James, I can absolutely see you'd be passionate about that whole um, climate change agenda without betraying any confidences. Are there any generic ways you're finding that data and analytics can help uh, advance the more environmentally friendly agenda?
1: Yeah, so a couple of pieces we've looked at recently is really try to identify within the base clients that we can see as being or Um, uh, showing signs of being green-focused and climate-focused. So we do that by looking at their transactional data, where they're spending their money, the type of energy provider they're they're, um, paying direct debits to, to Mm. almost build up a bit of a profile of a client base who we can talk to about new proposition development. Mm. The other side of the coin, though, is that, you know, amongst that very wealthy... Um, group of individuals there are a pocket of them who are having the opposite impact on the environment to the one we'd want so that mm-hmm. you know they've got their private jets they've got houses mm-hmm. around the world they're mm-hmm. um, regularly getting on board planes um, so it's also about exploring how we can educate that group and also potentially offset their carbon footprint by mm-hmm. conducting local activity as well so that's one example of how we've been able to use data and analytics to make
0: a difference great thank you thank you very relevant thing to share okay um i guess one of the things i'm keen to explore because it's something i guess i've heard from people earlier in their career when they're when they're considering different options is the amount of time you've spent in financial services i mean since your days at Screwfix, it's been apart from a a brief stint with a bit of beer in the sunshine um mainly working for financial services brands and i guess i hear a lot of Younger analysts think it's all a bit dull. Why would anyone want to work for a bank or an insurance company? Sell it to me. What, what's the appeal of working for banks or insurers in a data or analytics world?
1: That's a really good question. Um, and I'd argue it's far from dull. Um, what I really like about working in financial services in particular is the breadth of data we hold And the intelligence that we can glean from it more than anything. So as I touched on there, there's a raft of transactional data available. So where our clients are spending their money, where our customers are spending their money. It's really key insight when it comes to shaping proposition, the content that resonates with them. It's all really rich information. And we just um, touch on the climate change agenda again. We... Mm. Recently, discovered there's a, a growing trend at the moment amongst our wealthiest clients for switching to green energy suppliers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as a result, we spotted an opportunity to set up a partnership with Octopus Energy, who are one of the leading Ooh, green really? yeah. energy suppliers, uh, because we could see from that transactional data that there's real appetite to mm. to, to um, partake in that in that kind of service, which was was brilliant. Um, I, I think the other thing is the range of activity that we get involved in when it comes Mm -hmm. to the sort of campaign agenda, the decisioning agenda. So one day we can be looking at campaigns, looking at targeting vulnerable clients who need support because their business is facing challenge as a result Mm -hmm. of COVID. Mm -hmm. Next, we're running an event with Sir David Attenborough to encourage influential individuals to support the climate change agenda, which was a fantastic event that was run in the strand. And then next we're creating multi-million pound Investment deals um, off the back of targeted lead opportunity for our advisors. So there's a real blend that keeps it interesting as well, mm. and that combination mm. of channels, you know, relationship manager channels, digital, telephony, service centre, mm. um, obviously email, letter still has yeah. a place. Um, so that blend of activities brilliant. And I think the final thing I'd say is there's been a fundamental shift in the way that, certainly in my experience, in the way that financial services perceives its role in society. So Mm. um, within NatWest Group, you'll hear Alison Rose talk a lot about moving to a purpose-led approach, and and that's Mm. certainly not just lip service. Mm. So we're taking steps to support the most vulnerable in society. Mm. We're playing our part by moving to a more sustainable business model, and I've Mm. just been lucky enough actually over the last three months to be trained up by... Um, Cambridge University in a course that they're running for all their leaders to help them understand how business and society needs to change to meet the the, uh, the, um, the challenge of, of climate change. Mm, mm. Um, and, and we're getting better at helping our customers through the the life stage they're at as well. So buying a home, having kids, saving for the extension, or supporting on tuition fees, retirement mm. planning. We're getting better at using our data to make sure that we're giving our customers the right support at the right time for them. So, certainly not dull, um, yeah. wealth of data and plenty of opportunity to make a difference for our customers.
0: Great. That sounds really good, actually. And I'm glad you brought that out, James, because I think that in the past, perhaps the answers I would have given, the answers I'd hear from others would be about yes, that wealth of data but the kind of salaries that are paid, you know, the, um, the, the growing need and demand for your services, but maybe less about that purpose led agenda, and that opportunity to do good, which I hear is growingly important to a whole generation of analysts and data scientists, they want to make the world a better place with their skills. So yeah, that, that was good to bring out as well. Go on, I suspect you've got a song choice for this question as well, haven't you?
1: I haven't actually, um, have had a one-off joke, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I could make one up on the spot if you want. Go
0: that. on uh, then, James.
1: Uh, could I have um, Foo Fighters, please? Uh, Learn to Fly.
0: Learn to Fly, that's your, that's your song to play for listening to this next question, listeners. Okay, as I mentioned at the start, um, I believe in NetWest, from what you've said, you're mainly working with high net, I guess ultra high net worth uh, customers. And their data, decisioning leads, etc. Have you found since the days when you were working with decisioning focused on mass customer data and mass customer bases, is there much of a change? Are there, is it very different? Did you need to develop new skills to focus on this sector?
1: Yes, I think the most obvious difference is the, the challenge that comes about just by working with a, a much smaller base. So we're talking tens of thousands of clients of COOTS, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. And when it comes to campaign selections, it can be in the low thousands. So achieving meaningful results from your campaign activity can be a challenge. And the odd £10 million investment can make um, what on the face of it is a fairly poorly performing campaign look brilliant. So Mm -hmm. we've we've had to be cautious about how we treat outliers. So that's Mm -hmm. one challenge. Mm -hmm. I think more broadly... In the way that the business operates, it's, it's taken some adjusting to. So the role of data when you're working for an organisation that's made its name and reputation through its fantastic private banker network, so our hmm. RM population. Hmm. So this is a group of um, uh, colleagues who know their clients and traditionally have known their clients inside out. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the sort of old bank manager approach of really getting to know your customer and, and knowing their financial needs. Mm-hmm. But over the years, like um, many businesses, um, Coop's has reduced the number of uh, frontline staff to yeah. reduce costs. Mm-hmm. We explore other channels like digital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the role of data for a group of individuals who've been used to knowing um, uh, their customer inside out, the, the role of data changes. As the number right. of those people reduces if that makes sense so what we've had to do is is conduct a bit of a hearts and minds piece mm-hmm. um, to to really get them to to buy into the value of data driven leads um, mm. which we've done through a few routes including um having a a frontline forum focused on next best actions and leads that we're providing So they go out and really educate their colleagues on the importance of data. Mm. But I think Mm. it's also recognising that the advisors have very different remits. So some of them will have hundreds of clients and really it's about helping them prioritise the next best conversation, Mm. whereas others will be managing the real top end of the client base in terms of uh, financials. Um, And for them, it's more around exploring opportunities to add intelligence that they will be able unaware of otherwise yeah. so it's yeah. things like online journey activity for example that they just couldn't be privy to mm. um, so I think we're getting there in terms of engagement levels we've seen a three or fourfold increase in the number of leads that we supply that results in an engagement and a lot of that has been less about talking data and more about understanding the need to the front line and giving them mm. what they need to have the right conversation with their clients
0: yeah, that makes sense, James. And I'm glad you brought out the hearts and minds thing because when I was hearing you describe the challenge of the more traditional and, and also focused on high net worth um, relationship managers, I, I imagine this isn't like um, getting a buy-in to a CRM system going in or something like that. It, it's a lot more about not just delivering, I can prove the lead works, but persuading that you can help them actually really understand people and take empathetic, human-focused actions that work in that relationship, not just such a rational kind of formulaic kind of approach as sometimes kind of next best action or that kind of work is is perceived. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it absolutely does. And I think balancing your service-focused messaging alongside the more Mm. promotional element has been key to the success Mm. as well that's played a, a big part in it and has been important um but yeah i mean this they this is a really good group of people they know their stuff and mm. they're up for being mm. armed with extra information it's mm. just been finding the right route into to getting them to see the value um but you know they're a pleasure to work with and really do know their stuff
0: good 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 i imagine it's still a measurement challenge though i mean i can think back to people in the past I work with who really know their stuff, but you can get into things like sponsorship and events and, and all sorts of hard-to-measure activity, that it's it's difficult to prove the incremental value you've added by data-led actions or campaigns or messaging. Is it something you've, you've learned to kind of master in terms of how you measure this uh, slightly greyer area of relationship management? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and to be honest with you, I don't think we've necessarily cracked it yet, but Mm -hmm. one of the approaches we've taken now is that um, we use PEGA, which is a decisioning engine, which Mm -hmm. sits at the heart of our channel. So the campaigns that we initiate, the next best actions that go to the front line, Mm -hmm. the digital content we present that's tailored and personalised to the customer Mm -hmm. originates through the PEGA decisioning engine. And one of the things we've done in terms of measurement is to hold back a a fallow group of clients who are held back consistently across all activity we do so that we can see the cumulative effect of a number of campaigns rather than particularly focusing in on campaigns in isolation. There is an element of that, but we recognise that the variation of performance could be down to random chance rather than Mm -hmm. the, the effectiveness of the campaign. So yeah, that fallow group approaches has, has
0: helped us great that makes good sense and yeah it's too often neglected i find with organizations who are keen not to miss volume they'll maybe have the campaign by campaign control groups but but very uh reticent about a fallow group or a fallow group that's refreshed it glad to hear that and another theme that you've, you've highlighted yourself james is is this being drawn to what I still think of as database marketing, but I I recognise all the kids call it decisioning these days. What do you enjoy about that type of work rather than the the behavioural analytics, the data science that a lot of people have got drawn into? What's so good about decisioning as a route to take?
1: So the bit bit I like most of all about it is the the tangible outcome. So it's very evident when you deliver Data support for a well-targeted campaign with a strong hook Mm. that lands at the right time and resonates with customers. It's going to deliver significant commercial return. You can kind of hang your hat on the the part you played in that, which I really enjoy. Mm. I also think it's an area, though, where if you get it right, it requires a really good blend of skills. So we've got people in the team at the moment who specialize in Shaping the targeting of the campaign activity, propensity mm. modeling. It could be timely trigger development. We've mm. got a group of people who are focused on deployment uh, through Pega mainly, but also directly through other email solutions. Yeah. And then the measurement parts at the end that we've just talked about have so been really clear, not just on the, the headline figures of mm. campaign performance, but also the underlying view of which customers it particularly resonated with where in the, right. the funnel the sales funnel what are we seeing customers drop out and uh, you know personally leading a team that has a blend of disciplines across that is is really enjoyable and something I, I i get a kick out of because each of those um areas of expertise will attract different sorts of people with different skill sets and it's it's great fun seeing that all come together and for people to work really effectively across all of those disciplines to produce a really good outcome for the customer and the business.
0: Yes, you know I can absolutely see that. It's one of, one of the elements I loved in my role was was that leadership across a diverse skill set of people and the the ways that they can collaborate and contribute to a a much richer delivery to the business in terms of what all those people could produce playing to their own skills. Right, I I, I guess. The challenge of that sometimes can be that they can be quite different groups of people who don't necessarily appreciate one another's different personality types and skill sets. Now, obviously, can't ask you to tell tales out of school, so to speak. But have you chosen to focus as a leader on helping them appreciate and understand the work that they do in very different teams?
1: Yeah, so I'd I'd answer that question um, with with a slight different spin on it to the technical differences but I think one thing we have really concentrated on as a team is um, almost understanding people's preferences for the way they operate um, Mm. which can be linked to the type of discipline in my experience that they go into Mm. Um, and it's, it's kind of getting people to first of all understand their own preferences and secondly to understand that the way they see the world isn't always consistent with how others see it, which seems mm. like a very obvious thing to say, but it's remarkable mm. how often people will tell you that the way that they see things is is the only way. Yeah, um, but we ran, we ran an exercise. Um, it was a spotlight profiling tool recently, which is really helpful um, mm. in helping us understand our behavioural preferences as a team, mm. to understand how as a team we were light in some areas. So as a team, we weren't especially optimistic as a group mm-hmm, but we were extremely logical um mm-hmm, prudent in terms of our outlook in terms of risk management and so on mm-hmm. and um uh, you know as a team we had a profile but within that we had individuals with very different profiles and it was remarkable uh, during that exercise um, that uh, people quite often talk about other people in the team who they got on with really well and more often than not their behavioural outlook, their approach to work was very consistent in the, the survey that they'd run and, mm. and vice versa yeah. as well. Mm. So um, we rather than doing that as a one-off exercise, we have followed up with team exercises. We've had consultants yeah. in just talk, talk us through how we approach that and get the best out of each other. Mm. But critically, to, to all be in a position to flex towards other people's preferences and ways of working. And that's been really valuable.
0: Good, good. I'm pleased to hear that. And yeah, well done for the follow up. I I think too many times over the years, I've seen leaders who get some kind of psychometric or team event happen in order to understand each other better. And then somehow it's allowed to kind of wither on the vine and it's not followed up. And it is in the learning to work in a different way and continue to keep that understanding of difference but the ability to collaborate, that's where the real work happens in putting it into practice. So keeping it alive is key, James. Well done. Keen to also explore a bit about what might be other challenges for leaders like you. I'm remembering that Already on the podcast, we've had Firas, who spoke about his experience at Aberdeen Standard Life. To some extent, some of what Harry Wilkes is doing at RELX. We've had a number of people who've come more from the decisioning kind of side. From your perspective, what do you think are the the biggest challenges for decisioning leaders like you today?
1: Yes, I think I'll answer that question in terms of... um, kind of broader contact strategy that we're building. So I, okay. I think um, one, of, one of the biggest challenges is is simply that our customers are now doing more online than they've ever done before. Mm, uh, mm, I think mm. that's been accelerated through COVID. Sure. And on one hand, it creates a huge amount of opportunity in terms of the wealth of data that we get in and, and how we can utilise that for decisioning purposes. But... Yeah. Um, I think for a business that's traditionally been um, built, uh, used targeting based predominantly on an offline view of its customers,
2: mm.
1: Mm. We're, we're finding increasingly it can become very quickly out of date that view mm. when you're not mm. effectively joining it up with with the online journeys that your your customers are taking. So, yeah. for example, we we might know that a customer is high propensity for a mortgage, they're top decile for a, for a mortgage conversation. Mm-hmm. Actually, if they've just dropped out of an online investment sales journey, we need to be in a position to to pivot and make sure we're Mm -hmm. talking to them about the the things that will resonate most for them based on their their most recent activity. So I think part of that is getting the technology in good shape. So making Mm -hmm. sure you're getting a real-time or near real-time online data feed to tap Mm -hmm. into so you've got Mm -hmm. a really up-to-date view of your customer's but sure. then it's it's the processing of that data and making it usable um, for the front line or for your email campaign activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at the moment we're exploring passing that information back through Pega and then wow. outwards to the the channels that are most appropriate. So I think I think we're getting there, but um, I certainly think that that is a a challenge that we we perhaps didn't face into to the same extent five or 10 years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: I think I think the other element which is connected to that is also about consistency in messaging. So, mm-hmm. uh, whereas in the past, um, you know, customers may have had direct touch points through your call center and then the occasional email. Now, clearly they're coming to online banking every day, they're visiting your public website, they're talking to their advisor, they're phoning uh, cooks 24 service center to make a payment. Yeah. Um, they're receiving your emails and getting that consistency of messaging and reinforcing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. messaging across channel, You know, be it service led or be mm-hmm. it promotional mm-hmm. opportunity is really important. And the governance around that's really important as well. Mm-hmm. So with mm-hmm. all these messages mm-hmm. and all these points of contact, how do you make sure you're not flooding your customers with too much information yeah. and making yeah. sure it's not contradictory See, I think in summary that the sort of online boom, um, which Mm. obviously isn't a recent Mm. thing, but has been accelerated by COVID, is Mm. is the thing we've had to adjust to most in recent times.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense, and it's it's a consistent theme I've I've heard from other leaders in terms of that acceleration, as you say, and needing to ensure you accelerate readiness to act in that way, um, in a way that's intelligent for customers. I'm left wondering, I guess there were, there were two aspects to what you shared, James, that I heard. One is very much a, a technical best practice, a capability kind of understanding. Obviously, you've, you've got a sizable investment in, in PEGA, but thinking about how technology evolves, goodness me, decisioning solutions, uh, there's a new one probably every day. Um, and the other was thinking about the customer experience and how the business needs to transform and what make sense as the big picture of what you're trying to achieve and what that means in detail. Where do you focus more of your effort as a leader? Do you think you need to have a depth of technical understanding as to what is the art of the possible? Or do you concern yourself more with championing the customer or understanding the business implications? Is it both? Is it one or the other?
1: Yeah, I think it has to be a blend of both. And I see the mm. the former around technologies being the the kind of foundational um layers to to achieve a a really effective customer communication program Mm, you mm. can't you can't do that without having the right building blocks without having the right data flow without having the right recency of data and making sure you've got the most up-to-date view and then a conduit to to getting out to the right channels to contact Mm, the right mm. customer at the right time fundamentally so um i'll be honest with you i'm less um, less excited by the technology element. I'm much more passionate about the way we treat our customers and, and what we say to them and, and generating income, but also meeting their needs and requirements at the life yeah. stage they're at. But, um, you know, the technology is a necessary evil in, in achieving one.
0: Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I, and I hear that. And, and knowing you, Gems, as I do, I'm not at all surprised to, to hear where your passion lies. Given the importance of the first part and kind of what I alluded to in terms of how much this world has moved on, we can think of the almost seismic changes of the increased role of of email and digital solutions, the increased viability of having cloud-based solutions for how you implement some of this, the increased complexity of multiple channels to try and coordinate the whole orchestration kind of piece. How do you keep up to date? with what's I guess not just potential suppliers, but best thinking of technically how to tackle these kind of problems these days. Is it is it something that you have certain sources you go to or how do you keep yourself sufficiently up to date that you feel technically informed?
1: Yeah, so one of the avenues um I started to explore a couple of years ago in this regard was to start to grow my external network with with like-minded individuals um, working in, in, in similar areas, similar disciplines, and also financial services as well. Sure. And one route I found beneficial to doing that was that I picked up with our PEGA relationship manager who put yeah. me in touch with his financial services lead in America, yeah. which then opened up um, a route to talking to people in non-competing businesses who were yeah. facing into very similar challenges and were potentially you know, a few years further down the line in terms of the decision and capability that they've built. And oh. I found um, that kind of peer-to-peer idea sharing mm-hmm. in, a, in a safe environment, a non-competing mm-hmm. environment, has been, has been beneficial.
0: That makes good sense. I'm glad you raised that because I've known a few of my mentoring clients who've also mentioned this benefit of focusing on building your external network, not not just as everybody tends to think in terms of profile and my next step on the career ladder, but in order to have this source of best practice, other ideas, challenge to keep you evolving and growing. I, I can see that makes good sense, particularly internationally, as you, as you mentioned. As a leader, then, thinking broadly, because you've ranged raised a number of things, the, the technical, the business, the people management kind of aspects... What skills are you still actively developing? Because I know you're a person who's committed to to growing and developing. What skills are you working on as a leader, James?
1: Yeah, so I think um, one area of focus that is is always high on the agenda is is around creating a strategy that the the business can buy into so that exco mm. leaders are, are see the benefit of to, to in support of their priorities and are prepared sure. to to invest in your, your data vision, your decisioning vision. Mm, and yeah. I think over the years, it's been a case of, um, it's been iterating the approach. In the past, would have talked a lot about the power of the technology that we're implementing. So, you know, we could talk about self-learn capability and hope, hope to get them excited. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, we, we could talk about the technicalities of the targeting we're doing, but actually... That's not always what they want to hear or what they're interested in. No. Often it's um, you have far more success, in my experience, if you position what you're building in terms of their key priorities, which probably goes without saying, but has been a learning curve for me over the last five years or so. Mm. I think what you also see is that, depending on the individual Exco member, what they're looking for, um, even with that framing, can be quite different. So you may mm. have one leader who will really want to drill into the financials in great depth and understand how you're supporting Mm -hmm. their commercial targets, whereas others will be much more interested in the broader customer experience. I think Mm -hmm. part of that comes with um, experience with that individual and getting to know them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it is also being ready to be flexible in the way that you pitch this stuff. And and quite often doing a few pre-runs before you turn up in front of uh, the whole gang in the ballroom yes. and picking off individuals to make sure they're yes. they're on board before you get to that point. And as I talked about earlier, I think flexing your preference style is important as well. Mm. So um, mm. I've been working on pitching in a much more optimistic way than would naturally right. come to me, which I think yeah. has helped. So selling a vision, it's important that you, um, you kind of uh, really – really to sell the benefits and get, and kind of relay your excitement about what yes. you're yes, much indeed. more likely to, to bring people with you mm, uh, so that flexing yeah. flexing of style both in terms of individual style but also mm. when you're talking to individual members and understanding what they want from from you and your vision
0: yeah that great points james that echoes so many of those i can remember for one thing learning myself as well how much when you start being a senior executive committees or boards, you, you do have to learn to bring the content that they're interested in. Even if you don't think it's the best stuff you've got to sell them, uh, getting relevance, reaching the stage of trusted advisor, because you can help them with what's on their mind is, is absolutely the way to start. I'm interested in your point, and it's a good one, that even then there'll be different personality types, different areas of interest. I guess one thing I've seen work very effectively for some people but feel really overkill for others is is not just to have one version of your deck is kind of almost to have a a summary version of your presentation that's nice and succinct and punchy and passionately communicated to to get across quickly overall but but in those individual like one-to-ones to to present the information quite a different way almost to different people because you've got the finance director type view of the world, that maybe the marketer, the one who really cares about customer experience, the the cost control person, the growth and innovation person, et cetera. Is that something you've seen work for you, that it is maybe about not just one version of your presentation, but things more tailored to that stakeholder?
1: Yes, I, I totally uh totally echo those comments and and that has been my experience I, i'll give you one example of uh one ex-co member we're working with at the moment who refuses point blank to engage with powerpoint presentations and we much sooner you turned up with a a live example of what your stuff's going to deliver it's almost like seeing the digital content in the meeting mm. pop up mm. when we click on something in the email for example is a good way to bring it to life so yeah i completely uh completely
0: see see what you're saying certainly reflects my experience good good it was always, always nice to be validated okay um another thing that i always ask guests on this podcast is to think of casting their mind back or think about people in their team who may be a bit earlier in their career and it's because we've got a mixed audience on this podcast some will be leaders in positions like you james some may be much earlier in their career still not quite sure which way they want to go. For those who may have listened to a few of these episodes and thought, actually, I'm persuaded by James, decisioning sounds like quite a good route to go down. What skills and knowledge would you encourage them to be thinking about developing in order to be able to take your kind of route in future?
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that I've found has really benefited me, even though predominantly I've been focused on the decisioning uh, science area, Mm -hmm. is that actually getting a grounding across a number of analytical disciplines can give you a really good sense of all the important moving parts that you need to have in place um, yeah. to deliver really effectively on the decision agenda. So, you know, data engineering, data science, mm-hmm. customer research, analytics, business partner, as i talked about before. Mm. And I think, you know, just on that last point around business partnering, um, I can't overemphasise the importance of getting out to the business in a couple of ways, really. One, making sure you're going out and talking to your stakeholders with, with no fixed agenda other than to understand what's important to them and then start to design Uh, data solutions for them and analytical solutions Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. you know as we talked about earlier land some quick wins with them to earn the right Mm -hmm. to try something new and give them more of what they need rather than what they've asked for Mm because invariably to begin with they'll ask you something that probably isn't as useful as something else you could give them but without um without giving them a bit of what they need um they're probably not going to be as receptive to trying new things so I think Mm -hmm. that's that's really important as well Mm-hmm. Um, you know, software is changing all the time. So that's that's a difficult area to cover. You know, our Python is now um, flavor of the month. Will it be? You know, a few years down the line, we'll have mm-hmm. to see. Um, mm-hmm. In a way, uh, when I'm recruiting, I'm much less interested in the software experience that people have got. Mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in their ability to turn data into insight, draw conclusions and change the way the business operates as a result. I'm pretty sure that if you're good at SaaS, you'll get R and Python and vice versa. That can be mm. trained. Yeah. Um, but having that ability to really glean insight from data mm. and drill mm. down, take those train of thought paths um, through to the right conclusion, mm. giving the business some insight that they wouldn't otherwise have that they can mm. change things off the back of is, is more fundamental, I think.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you, James. Good 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 examples and completely echo that. The the importance of that domain knowledge and and trust building and the uh the analytical thinking. I'm with you completely. I think um the technical can be learnt, it, it can matter, but it can be learned. And there's not enough focus on the on the people skills and the thinking skills, as you say, the kind of analytical thinking more generically. Okay. Um Let's go for this question and then I, I'll, I'll prime you up in advance. I'm going to ask for a final song choice, James, after this so that we can keep your gag running. Um, can you give me an example of something you've changed your mind on in the last few years? And I, I ask this question of every leader because I want to bring to life for the listeners, even people who've had quite some success in their career. They're not the finished article. You know, there's a, there's a continuing willingness to learn and change. So, What have you changed your mind about, James?
1: Yeah, so in some respects, this point seems blindingly obvious and very simple, but it's one that's kind of passed me by for probably a couple of decades, really, of working with data analytics. So it's it's thinking that you know everything about your customer through the data that you see and Mm. spending all your time optimising and building propensity models, Mm. when actually, if you just ask them in the first place what they're interested in, you probably could have cut out a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, have we have we asked them what communications they're interested in receiving from us and mm-hmm. um, which are going to go straight into the deleted file their inbox? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it can make a huge difference. You know, which products and services do they want to hear from us about and which are they really mm-hmm. not? And then feeding that back into the decisioning engines alongside things like propensity and triggers, but getting that blend of um, customer given information with our own internal view of what we think the customer's got and that can be really important and yeah. blended well together can be really effective than taking either in isolation and you know it could be a quick online survey we're talking about here it doesn't have to be war and peace it doesn't have to be a full-blown uh, research study it could be simply um, an agent in a call center asking the right questions or a quick online survey as I say so again it's something that I've kind of passed me by really but um we're starting to address now in the way that we we collect information from our customers and i think it could make a big difference
0: great stuff glad to hear it and and who are for research even though i hear that it's not always a, a full research study but uh, it matters too so it makes good sense james thanks for that okay final song choice james what's the what's the one you leave listeners with to uh, sum you up
1: Well, I think it's uh, appropriate to choose Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen uh, for no other reason than I tried to play it to my daughter uh, last night to show her what great song it was, how it had multiple parts to it, amazing instrumental, um, and she thought it was rubbish and she made me turn it off after about one minute, which, uh, if you know anything about Bohemian Rhapsody, is only about 20% of the way into the song, I think. So, yeah, at least if you play it for me now, Paul, I'll get to hear it in its entirety.
0: Marvellous, marvellous, marvellous. I'll I'll think about it. Okay, that's great. Thanks for that, James. And many thanks for your time today. It's, as I expected, been a pleasure to chat with you. Great. Thanks, Paul. Really good to talk to you too. Great. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found that helpful, uh, perhaps amusing. And continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. Before then, thanks everyone for your time. Have a good week. And however locked down you still are at the moment, stay safe, keep well, And bye for now.